I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the 86th Texas Legislature. This week, investing in the future of Texas. Every session, the only thing the House and Senate are constitutionally obligated to do is pass a budget in balance. Sounds easy. But it's one thing to talk about approving a two-year spending plan in a state with the 10th largest economy in the world, and another to actually do it. To do it in a way that makes the complexity transparent, to do it without having to make choices that favor certain issues and constituencies over others, without disappointing somebody or everybody. They say budgets are moral documents. They tell us about our priorities. Well, they're also roadmaps. They show us the way forward. Texas is fast-growing and dynamically changing. If the demographers are right, our way forward is more populous, more urban, and more diverse, with looming, ballooning price tags attached to each of those drivers. When we pass a budget, our job is to get it right, not just for the next biennium, but for the next decade or two, or longer. This is about the fabled out years as much as anything, as this week's guest knows only too well. State Representative John Zerwas, Republican of Richmond, has just begun his second go-round as chair of the House Appropriations Committee. He is the lower chamber's chief budget writer and wrangler. He leads the effort to assemble all the wants and wish lists, and he knows the limits of what Texas can spend and what politics dictates Texas should spend. This is a conservative state. We spend conservatively. Austerity equals prosperity. We're told that incessantly. The question, at a moment when public education and healthcare and Harvey are in competition for every available dollar, when we have one eye on today and one eye on tomorrow, is can we make the math work? Do we have the wallet to match our will? I asked Chairman Zerwas that and more when we sat down on the afternoon of February 11th, day 35 of the 140th. of Order is supported by Deloitte, more than 80,000 professionals with a single focus, helping their clients solve their toughest problems. Learn more at Deloitte.com. And by Centerpoint Energy, a domestic energy delivery company headquartered in Houston and committed to delivering a safe and reliable supply of natural gas and electricity to Texas and beyond. Visit CenterpointEnergy.com. And by the Texas Hospital Association. Texas hospitals are at the forefront of reform, leading efforts to improve patient outcomes and cut costs. See Texas Hospitals Priorities for a Healthier Texas at THA.org slash 2019 Legislative Session. I want to start existentially and ask you the great big looming question. Maybe it's the question, and a better way to say it is that it's the last scene in the movie, and then we'll work backwards. Do we have enough money to do all that we want to do? Uh, great question. Uh, <clears throat> we have a lot of money, yeah. more than that, which I have ever seen in my years as an appropriator since 2007. The largest revenue estimate you've seen. Largest revenue I've seen, ever right. seen. Right. Uh, but it's never enough money. It's not enough money. And so as I like to tell people who ask this, I say, we have a lot of money, but we don't have enough money. 
So when you think that we don't have enough, where is that not enough going to manifest itself? What do we not have enough to do? Because clearly we're going to have enough to do some things, but Correct. some things yes. are going to get sacrificed. Uh, well, I think what it'll be is they'll get prioritized. Yeah. Okay? And so there'll be things that we prioritize in, in the two big parts of the budget, Article 3, which is education, and Article 2. And remember, which an is article, health and human. Which is health and human, yes, sir. And so and remember, an article, in Article 3, uh, three, it's not just pub ed, which is a big focus right now, but we took a lot of money out of higher ed last time in order to help balance the budget. Uh, for instance, we, we robbed the research funds significantly in right. order to get money into other critical areas like Medicaid, which is, of course, an entitlement. So is it your intention for, for all the higher ed nerds listening to this to put money into higher ed, uh, significantly more money than has been there before? Oh, it's it's my intent to try to uh, at least sort of re, you know replenish some of the things that we took money fill from, in the hole you know fill in the hole. So, for instance, I, uh, one that I like to talk about, and then this is way in the weeds with the nerds and higher ed yeah. is you know we have a fund called the Trip Fund, which is a fund that has a matching program. So it's incentivized is incentivizes the university to find some amount of money that the state can match. So you essentially double, triple, or whatever the match might be right. for research. Um, make your dollar go farther. Make a lot farther. Well, there's a lot of private money that is piled up out there, uh, very interested in matching this money, but we whittled it down to $35 million last time. That was the we, cap on the match? The, that the 35 million? 35 million was the amount that we had in the piggy bank in order to match in the various universities. Cor so, correct. Yeah. yeah. So, and it, it only goes to the emerging universities and things. So, like if you were able to raise that a little bit, then that would have yeah, a multiplier and, effect in right. terms of how and the there, match there's, there's, there's lots of areas we can do that. Right. You know, wh whether we can actually, you know, raise the rate in the formula, <laughs> probably not because that becomes a big m amount of money really right. fast, you know. But we did, we did adequately uh, fund, you know, that part of the bill and the higher ed institutions. I will tell you this, uh, Evan, most of the higher ed people are coming in and the first thing they say is thank you for HB1, you know. Uh, they're they're not, not unhappy with the Senate bill, but I'm not paying attention to that right now. You're talking but about the base budget. The base you've budget. Introduced that we, budget the the introduced said, budget, right? which is HB1 that's filed and, and will, you know, be considered here, you know, in the next, well, is, is being considered as we speak. Uh, is uh, is the, the the primary theme that we hear from them is thank you for what you've done, and that doesn't mean we gave them everything they wanted. But if you consider where we started last time and and some of the things that occurred during the last legislative right. session, um, and kind of the rescue efforts we made in in higher ed, this is a great place for them to start. Well, in any legislative session, Chairman, there's a victory that comes in getting more money and there's a victory that comes in not getting less money. You win by winning and you win by not losing. And so right. higher ed is right. probably as happy not to take a haircut. <laughs> that, 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 I'm sure of that. Right? Even sure. if they didn't get everything they wanted. Exactly. They just say, protect me. Let me stay existential for a second. If you say, if you're willing to acknowledge immediately that we don't have enough money uh, to do all the things that we want to do, to be the state we want to be with the ambitions and the exceptionalism that we talk about all the time, why don't we go out and get more money to pay for those things? There is always a conversation around why we don't have more sources of revenue. And I know this is a conservative state. It's a low-tax state. That's a feature and not a bug. But if we have all these aspirations, if we talk about exceptionalism and we can't be the state we want to be in the footprint of this budget, why don't we grow the budget by growing the revenue? All right. Well, first of all, I'll say part of the reason we are the state that we are is because we have been very conservative about our budgeting. We've been very conservative about the size of government, even though it's a significant beast in and of itself, you know, but compared to other states, uh, 
you know, we, we are a very conservative. And I think that's, that's actually one of the critical reasons we are the state that we are today, uh, is government has gotten out of the way. Government hasn't overly involved itself in everybody's life uh, through taxes and other things like that, that, you know, it, it's a great place for people to want to come, for to raise their families, to establish a business. Um, I mean, I think that's I think that's one of the key things. So right, but even if you, but if you stipulate other. that, you understand that you're you're making a choice in doing so. You stipulate yeah. that a conservative budget creates the circumstances that people are attracted to. They want to come here. They want to raise families here. They want to start businesses here. But the flip side of that is we're a fast growing state. We're a dynamically changing state. We're a rapidly urbanizing state. Those things all have costs associated with them. Absolutely. So you Absolutely. make a choice. And what you don't do in a state that budgets as conservatively or raises revenues conservatively is you don't raise money to then turn around and invest in those things to the degree that some would like. Uh, oh, absolutely. And that, that I, I would tell you, you know, uh, the, the amount of revenue that we could have could be significantly larger and we still won't have enough money to do everything that theoretically you might want to do as a state. Yeah. Okay. And so I, I believe you accept that. And and I, I call it just prioritizing. And you say it comes and back to priorities. It right. comes back to priorities. And so let's establish the priorities that are most important to the state of Texas. Um, you know, some, and it depends on which lens you look through, whether we've gotten that right in the past or not. Right. But a great deal of the budget we have no choice over. You know, remember. So we, much we, of it is not discretionary. It's not discretionary. Like 17% of the budget, you know, and we're talking about a big budget. We, we don't have a choice. I don't have any choice over funding the Medicaid program, right. which uh, grows every year in terms of people that are enrolled in the Medicaid program. And stuff. Right. So uh, now we've been able to hold the cost down on a per capita basis in, in the Medicaid program pretty significantly. But it does continue to grow. Yeah, and the idea that you, so the point is that the idea that you zero-based budget every year, you start over with a fresh blank piece of paper and you say, what are the priorities for this year? You are already committed walking into a budget cycle to quite a lot of, uh, to, to quite a lot of items. Correct, yeah. Quite a lot uh, of spending. Yeah. And that uh, includes, of late, an allocation to the transportation um, uh, allotment that Correct. the state uh, uh passed by way of this constitutional amendment several Correct. sessions ago where now we're diverting a certain amount of money back to, to transportation. We right? are. And, and we're dedicating that, that was a priority that we established at uh, in a previous time, we, like we did with water prior right. to that. Uh, I would say that education is that area that we should have prioritized right from the beginning uh, because I do think that uh, the foundation school program is singularly the most important thing that we should be about. You think we sure. should have prioritized that ahead of transportation? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So would you have done have. a constitutional amendment uh, similar to what we did with transportation or water, oh, I, creating I, I, a funding mechanism yeah, for education? Absolutely, because I think that's where we are right now. So why didn't we do it? I think that we felt that uh, we were we were adequately funding our schools. Again, adequately is is the key term there. Uh, that there wasn't a crisis per se, and that what we had a significant issue related to transportation and attracting businesses to the state, and to continue kind of the economic fervor that we had, uh, we needed to you know go ahead and establish this as a, a funding mechanism, having per having permanent, ongoing, permanent, ongoing. Well, yeah. no, no, not permanent. These things are sunsetted. Remember, remember, well, these funds do sure. sunset. We'll, we'll in revisit a it, of time. but the point is, there's not an end date right now, except through the sunset mechanism. Uh, right? That's correct. That's yeah. correct. Now there is, though, and you'll remember, perhaps last session we talked about this. There is a clawback uh, provision in there. Uh, where if, in fact, you needed to get some extra money out of that, that $5 billion of revenue that comes off of the sales tax, there's a provision back in the, in the law that you can claw some of that back. 
based on a vote of the Senate and the House. Right uh, now, that that's a pretty that's a pretty dicey thing to put out there. And but I not, put but that out unu- there. Last it's an unusual time. circumstance. Yeah, yeah. And, and as you know, we were drastically low of cash last time, and we were looking at a way to find the money. I was very much a proponent of using the rainy day money for that purpose, as as you know, because. It was there. It was a very reliable uh, replenishment to that fund. We knew right. that, and and you know it was it, we weren't going to violate any other f- funding stream to do that. That yeah. that was counter to what the Senate wanted to do, where the Senate was very very protective of the rainy day fund and wanted to find right. a different way to find that extra money. I, I, I guess, Chairman, the, the, what I'm asking is, in the absence of an unusual circumstance where you have to claw back the money and you've got to go through a pretty significant vote of both houses of the legislature to do that, or in the absence it's, it's of a, sunset. It's a, it's a super majority. It's a hard, it's a hard thing it's to hard pull vote. off. Yeah. In the absence of the sunset process, you know, bringing its enormous foot down from the heavens onto the neck of this of this transportation allotment, that money is, for all practical purposes, going to continue to... Yeah, to be dedicated. It, it will be, you know, short, right. you know, uh, barring uh, the sunset provision that's in in the different uh, uh, propositions. That you don't passed. think that was a mistake? You don't like to go back now. You would not like to go back now and undo that or make a no, decision. No, no, not at all. Okay. Not at all. So I, then, when I, you, I'm yeah, very comfortable. When with you that. say that you think that we should have done or should do something for education, that's a similar deal. Are you just pie in the skying, or are you serious that that's something that you talked about or should talk about? Are we really on the verge potentially of a constitutional amendment as part of the? Solution set for public education uh, funding? Well, that I don't know. I, I don't know if 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 uh, we're going to be on that pathway or not. I think that's one that's for our, our committee on ways and means. Are to you come for? Up are you for it? it? For what? For potentially figuring out some permanent funding stream for oh, public absolutely. education. Absolutely. On the order of transportation, where you would say we're going to allocate this money in perpetuity, a dedicated deal that comes off the top. Absolutely. I'm I'm, I'm totally open to what any of the options that are going to be. Because here's the thing. <clears throat> If the session goes as we've kind of outlined on both the House and the Senate side, we're, we're going to push a bunch of money into public education, an amount of money that I don't think we've ever pushed into education before, right. you know, barring any kind of uh, a court decision to do something and stuff. So, so that money is going to be, you know, allocated by, you know, whatever the portfolio of bills that come forward in the House and the Senate to say, this is how we think you should spend this X billions of dollars, you know, in order to improve our public education system. Right. And so, okay, that's fine. We got this two-year one nailed, and we've got the money to do it, but how are we going to sustain it? What happens okay. over the next two years or the, the next or the next, right? And, yeah. and that's the key. That was the key that we were dealing with with transportation. You know, we needed to have a sustainable uh, and reliable, you know, fund of money that's going to come in, that's going to let us continue to right. support the things that we're doing now, and not to mention... You know, the whole conversation around, you know, capping property taxes. It's, it's interesting, Chairman. You know, the governor at one point talked about the idea of possibly diverting oil and gas severance taxes into some sort of an education fund. You know, he had discussed, as you know, the idea of, of creating some kind of a persistent mechanism for this. And actually, it was the comptroller who said this is a bad idea. The comptroller's exact phrase was, it's not a very wise idea because of the extreme volatility in oil and gas severance taxes. Are you signing on to the governor's proposal in theory, or do you think it would need to be a source of revenue coming from someplace more reliable? Well, I, I don't think it can be the singular source, but it can be a source. Remember, part You'd be of open the, to that idea. I'm, I'm open to it, but, but not as the singular way of continuing to enhance our funding to our public schools. Remember, part of the money now goes to transportation Correct. that comes off of that. Correct. Uh, so, and, and that, that is, I believe the portion that sunsets in the mid two twenties, 2020s. Um, and so, you know, 
that you could say, okay, fine, we've uh, spent that money doing that for this. You know, let's now think about maybe spending that money off for an educational purpose. I don't think that's so. The, 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 I don't think we can put ourselves in a position to really rely on that for exactly what the comptroller is saying. Um, is it some money that we could put into the pot that might help maybe funding it from other sources? Which again, go back to transportation. The, the, the big money comes out of the sales tax. You know, that $5 billion comes out of the sales tax. That's a pretty reliable fund of money, you know, considering the economy of the state and so forth. You know, uh, this money coming off of the oil and gas is kind of on top of that. Right. And so I still think that if you do choose to use some of the rainy day fund money for that, and I'm, I'm way okay with thinking about that and looking at that, there still needs to be some way that we enhance the funding to yep. public schools. So let's let's come back to those specifics in a second. But first, I want you to give me a little bit of a short course on the House introduced budget on its own face and and versus the Senate budget. So the Comptroller told you all that you had about $8 billion more in the revenue estimate than he had told you two years prior at the exact same point. You all came in with a first pass at this budget that was below what he said you had to spend. It was $115 billion or so in state general general revenue. This is not the all-funds budget. This is just the GR portion. Um, the Senate was about $3 billion below you in total. To my mind, the, the difference in the overall amount is interesting, but more interesting is the difference in the individual articles in the allocations. You've famously, by this point famously, put in significantly more money for public education than they did. Um, w- explain that you're thinking on that in the base budget versus theirs, and what are we to make of the difference? People don't mm-hmm. seem to be hair on fire about the fact that you're so far apart on the number. But it is billions of dollars that but, you're far apart. Yeah, but let's, let's just, for the ease of talking about it, say it's $3 billion difference, you know, right. somewhere, somewhere in that range. Because um, with the puts and takes, yours is about a net $7, million, $7 billion correct, increase correct. in public ed. Theirs correct. is about a net, just under $4 billion. So it's about correct. $3 billion. Right. Yeah. So we're, we're, you know, our position on it was, is what, what could we do that would be, in fact, transformational in the public education system? Uh, you know, and not put, you know, a lot of restrictions on it. You know, I, we had a group that met for 18 months after we finished our, our general session did the deepest dive I have ever seen on, you know, looking at what we could do to improve our public education system in addition to how we fund it and what could we do to make that funding right. simpler and, and, and better. And so I'm not here to say that that $6 billion, $7 billion needs to be used to give teachers pay raises, but some of that money I think very likely will be used to bring some sort of effort to pay teachers more so that, you know, we incentivize the good outcomes that we want. So, so we put an amount of money in that we thought was transformational and it comes from conversations. And, and then allowed for those teacher pay increases. We'll come to the mechanism for that in a second, but also allows for other uses. Ab- well, and that's money. absolutely. And that's not me telling, yeah. you know, pub ed what that is. You, you've had a group work on this in a very diligent way, sacrificed many, many hours. Right. And, and said, let's let's listen and see what they bring forward. What is the portfolio of bills? And they laid, out, laid out a menu of potential items. Exactly. And right. I said, okay. And I, as I said to Chairman Huberty many times over, I said, tell me what you want. Here right. is the money. And how do we want to spend it? I, I will tell you, it was kind of similar to the way uh, when I carried the TRB bill in 2015, which was $3.2 billion, somewhere in that range. Right. And I, I went to the members and I said, okay, here's the amount of money. Here's how it's going to kind of be divvied up. Tell me what your higher ed institutions are telling you that you want to spend this money on. Right. Now, the $7 billion that you're talking about does not, uh, as you correctly say, 
go to any one thing. It's not coming with strings or a mandate, although you suggest that some of it would be presumably dedicated to teacher pay. The Senate's allocation for additional public education funding is all for teacher pay. Correct. And as I read it, unless I'm misreading it, it's everybody gets a a pay increase. $5,000 for every single teacher. It's a little bit like middle school field day. Everybody gets a ribbon, (laughs) right? Good teachers, bad teachers, mediocre teachers. You talked about outcomes, you know, that we're going to fund performance. This just sounds like it's going to be an across-the-board increase on the Senate side. Am I understanding it correctly? I I understand it the same way you do. And and again, I I haven't been doing the deep dives into their budget with Senator Nelson uh, or or really anybody else, but that's my understanding. Is that the way you would go? Would you? No, no. here's, Here's my position. And I go back again to the the work that's been done by you know Chairman Huberty and others, uh, Diego Bernal. I said they spent he has spent so much time talking about this. If it was so easy as to just give across the board teacher pay raises, five thousand dollars now, five thousand dollars a year after that, and who knows in perpetuity, if that was the singular fix for our public school system, then why did we waste? these people's time, you know, to figure out what right. do we need to do for our public school system. When, when in fact, I, that's not called out specifically in the School Finance Commission report. I mean, right. that, that specific plan that the Senate has put forward is not even part of the recommendations of the School Finance right. Commission. Right. So so I, I'm not drawing a, land in, a line in the sand on this necessarily with, with the Senate because, again, I'm, I'm immersed in our budget and what we're trying to do. But you're not for it. Uh, I, I, I don't think that's the answer to our public school needs out there. Yeah. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, somebody would have to convince me otherwise. But if that was the issue, uh, we could have decided that in about ten minutes after the session ended last right. time, and said, "Let's not waste anybody's time. If the money comes in, let's give this amount of money to teacher pay raises, wash your hands up, and go home." Right. That's not the way it is. So, though. how do you and the Senate, by you I mean the House, how did the House and the Senate come together on this particular aspect of it? Where is the midpoint? What's the number ultimately likely to be? You've got good right. powers of prediction. You've done this before. <laughs> What's it going to be? Tell us what the number is. I don't know what it's going to be actually, uh, uh, but I do think that it will be a significant number that will not be devoted just to enhancing teacher pay, although I do think that there will be, will be some of that. I think one of the things you have to remember, you know, it, it, the legislature doesn't really tell you how much to pay a teacher. You know, that is determined by the various in, well, in, in the fa- school In fact, districts. the legislature does not pay teachers. Let's just stipulate that when the legislature calls for a teacher pay increase, it's a recommendation, but in, unless it puts enormous strings attached to those dollars, ultimately those dollars go to the school districts and they determine how those dollars get spent, the, correct? The, the school districts make those decisions. You know so. more pay teachers than you levy property taxes. We'll come to that in a second. So when you talk about property tax relief, in some respects, you really don't have the ability to cut property taxes any more than you have the ability to increase teacher pay. Right. Right? No, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we do have the ability to, as you're hearing the conversation right now, to establish you know, a ceiling on the amount of revenue before there needs to be a, a, a an election on further enhancement of that revenue. And property we know that conversation is right, going right. on. That's property right. taxes. Um, and that's something that we can right. do. I feel that there's a lot of momentum. The public is really, um, you know, uh, really on fire about this. Right. And frankly, I'm, I'm a property taxpayer too. Right. And, and mine, mine are going up. I have the fastest growing appraisal values in the, in the state in Fort Bend County. So I'm seeing this right. and, and actually feeling it. But again, what you can else. do is somewhat limited by what the state actually does and does not do on property taxes in the same way that what you can do on teacher pay is somewhat limited by what how the state does That's or right. does not you interact know, with this issue. We, we, we have over 1,000, uh, maybe 1,100 school districts, school districts right. 
multiple campuses out there, but you know the school board and the school uh, districts yeah. are the ones that ultimately uh, determine right. this. Now, you, yeah. Now we got to provide the funding. Of course, you know the money has to come down. And it has to be, you have to make it available. And you so. could choose to put strings on that money if you elected to. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you're, you're saying that maybe that's not the best the, the best course to pursue here is to put those strings on it. Right. I think I think the only thing that we need to be sure we do to the extent that the legislature can do it yeah. is to absorb the recommendations out of the interim commission who have spent countless hours in studying this um, and try to say how far can we stretch these these extra billions of dollars right. that will improve our public Because otherwise, system. what was the point? Because what was the point? Exactly. And, you know, look, look, I'm going to tell you, I, I did not jump into the middle of that. I am so glad that there are people like Chairman Huberty, his committee, and, and Vice Chair Diego Bernal that are willing to jump into the deep end of that stuff right. and bring those recommendations back to us. So on the property tax thing, as you say, you're a property taxpayer. I'm a property taxpayer. No one likes property taxes. I think we can agree on that if we agree on nothing else. No one likes to pay property taxes. The question is whether... The mechanism that has been proposed by HB2 and SB2 is the right mechanism or the wrong one and whether that particular proposal can pass this legislature. You remember what happened last time. The House was at six. The Senate was at four. As Chairman Betancourt likes to say, we decided to compromise at 2.5. <laughs> and and I, I've still not gotten an answer to this. If you all couldn't agree on some midpoint between six and four, what makes you all think that the votes are there to get to 2.5? Uh, it's a good question. It's a very valid question. I don't know that they are or not, uh, but the difference— Are you a we, yes on that? Uh, I, I'm a yes at starting the conversation where the Senate, the House, and the governor are all on the same page. Starting and at 2.5. Starting at 2.5. But if Let's that were the final legislation, if it were 2.5, if it were exactly the bill, untouched, would you vote for it? Um, personally, I, I would have to weigh whether my, my district really thinks that's the right direction to go. Because, and what have you heard? Uh, I've heard loud and clear from the, the property taxes, the constituents in general, that help us with something. These things are going up too fast, going up too fast, mainly in our, our county because of appraisals. Right. And so I have filed an appraisal reform bill like I did last time that got absorbed into you know, the, uh, the property tax revenue bill. It died along with the bill itself, you know. So I've tried to address that from my constituents' point of view and say, what can we do to help you with your appraisals? Because that's the thing that people are on fire about. Now, they are going to be all for doing something to try to put a lid on the rate of growth of property taxes in general. And if this is a way to do it and we can get to some number that our county officials, city officials, our school districts can get comfortable with, and it will be something less than eight, um, then, you know, I will try to advocate on a place that, you know, reflects my, my district. And so I don't know if it's 2.5% or not, because uh, I do know that that puts a real stranglehold on, you know, our, our county officials, our city officials. You're sympathetic uh, to that argument. I, I'm sympath very sympathetic yeah. to that argument and providing adequate police and fire and all those things that you've heard, uh, heard about lots of times. Um, and, and my district is, considers themselves very informed on that. And so, uh, I don't know if 2.5% is, is a number that, that they would be comfortable with, but I do think that they're going to get comfortable with a number less eight. than eight. Yeah. South you know, eight. Chairman Betancourt, if you were here, would say to you, uh, Mr. Chairman, Chairman Zerwas, what, what don't you like about accountability? All we're asking for is that these local officials go back to the voters and say, if we're going to increase revenues by more than 2.5% with some other sort of you know, sauce and sugar and all that around it. It's not exactly that, but it's close to that. Just go back to the voters and ask their permission and then, you know, 
let your freak flag fly. You know, raise them as much as you want, as long as the voters say it's okay. Right. What's wrong with right. that as a mechanism? Uh, I, I think that if you look at, and again, I'm looking at this through the lens of my district, which is probably like a, a whole number of others out there, is that it's it's going to create one more hurdle that prevents them from very effectively managing the needs of, of a fast-growing county. Yeah. And so that would be my argument. I said, look, you know, we know that, that they said that they could live with some number south of eight. We found that out last time. They said that was six last time. I, I don't know if that's the same number this time. Uh, I do think, though, from what I've heard, yep. uh, two and a half percent is is a very uncomfortable place for yep. my county officials. And I consider them all good stewards of of, right. of, of the uh, the county's resources. And, and you stuff. can count votes as well as count dollars in a budget. Do you think the votes are there to pass two and a half percent in the House? Uh, I don't know. I don't know right now. I yeah. think that the, that's going to, you know, we're going to see what the conversation is around that for right. sure. But again, I think the big part of this is, you know, the, the House, the Senate, and the governor are starting off on the same page. Right. So when the advocates come talk to us, whether they be just constituent property taxpayers or whether they be uh, county city officials or others, you know, we're starting from the same place. The Senate and the House and the governor are going to hear the same Right. Arguments. Now, the, the remainder of the base budgets introduced by the House and the Senate, you know, it's a little bit different. This percentage increase is a little bit lower than that one, or that one's a little bit higher than this one. There are two things in the House introduced budget that I want to ask you about that jumped out at me. One is to the untrained eye, and I would consider my eyes to be untrained relative to yours, Chairman. The natural resources article, Article 6, seems to be taking a pretty significant haircut in the GR budget. It's down by more than 13%. And Article 7, which is business and economic development, seems to be getting a massive increase. In fact, is getting a massive increase in the state share of the budget, 64%. This is according to the LBB numbers. Mm -hmm. Can you explain mm -hmm. why that is? Um, I don't have that readily at hand. Uh, I do know there are times where we uh, spend a significant amount of money on, on one-time items, if you will. And so Could those Harvey, for instance, be part of one of these, or is there something related? Well, there, is there, there something there, maybe related there, there, to a federal some, allocation that is offsetting it, the state allocation? It may allocation? be, and I have to say, I, I, I might, I'm right. honestly must say I don't know what that number is. But, but there's what, not anything that you can think of specifically that we're not aware of that is a major priority shift or priority change that would have caused these numbers to change. Not that, not that I'm, I'm aware of. Again, you know, it goes back to things that might have been, might have been federal monies that came in for projects that no longer came in after that yeah. and stuff. And so, you know, we're, we're of course talking about smaller amounts of money in that particular situation. Right. Overwhelmingly, um, the larger articles, with the exception of public education, are remaining reasonably consistent, inflation growth and, and all that. And, and you all in the Senate are not vastly different on the larger items. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So, um, so I honestly, I, I can't give you a deep dive on, on that particular one as to why there's yeah. just such dramatic difference on that. Um, if there were a big shift in priorities or something you were trying to do that had a material impact on all of us, we'd probably know about it and you would probably know about uh, it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I'm sort of looking through some of my notes here just to see if there's right. something in there that I could, I could, uh, you know, put po my finger po on it. Point stuff, to, but know, no, yeah. nothing, nothing right off the yeah, bat. But gen generally when we see uh, fairly significant decreases in a, in a, an article, it's because we funded a one-time item that is no longer being funded after right. that. And so if right. you look at, for instance, our, our border security bill, you know, it's still a lot of money. It's $783 million, I believe, or something of that uh, in that particular Roughly area. what Seven, you had, 783. right, roughly yeah. what you had spent in each of the last two biennia. Right. right. Yeah. So, but in this, in this particular set, we, we brought that down because 
there's some one-time items that we paid for in border security cameras yeah. and things like that that obviously don't come up this time. You know? Right, but 783 is essentially the same amount, as I said, of what you spent before. And as you know, Chairman, every two years we hear, it's not only Democrats, but mostly Democrats say, if we're looking for money to put into public education or something else, we heard originally when that border security allocation was made, this was a federal responsibility. It was such a federal responsibility that some guy named Bonin sent a bill to the federal <laughs> government asking that we be repaid for the money that we had outlaid out of our budget. Right. 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 Wasn't it Chairman Bonin who at that time? That was his, that was his who, bill, who, yeah. who sent that deal. Yeah. So if we're continuing to believe what we said then, that this is a federal responsibility, why are we continuing to allocate $800 million to border security? Why right. not redirect that, as the critics will say, to public education or some other pressing issue? If, if in fact, there was a... a, a a confidence that the federal government would come in and pay for these needs down there, we'd have it out like that. Which no there doubt. is not. Which there's not. There now, is not. you may recall last session where uh, when President Trump was elected, there was a real sense that there was an administration that was going to be, you know, friendly to this idea that, you know, we didn't put it in our budget in the House. You know, we said, let's not put that in there. Let's, you know, kind of move on the idea that that's going to happen. It didn't happen over the period of the session. We said, no, it doesn't look like that's going to happen, at least within a timely fashion. So, you know, we, we incorporated that back into our budget. But you're exactly right. That's, you know, south of a billion dollars that could make a difference in a lot of our different articles. But anybody who thinks that perhaps in this session that allocation is going to go down significantly or to near zero should it's a, it's, no. a wa it's a wasted uh, right. uh, effort to think that that's going to happen right. this time. That's right. That, that, that's money that we're, we're including in there. We see the need for it. We feel like it's right. being used for good purposes to create, you know, a safe environment around the border right. and stuff. So, you know, I, it's in there. I'm not getting a lot of pushback from my colleagues, you know, in the House, either Republican or Democrat, on that particular subject. T tell me about the supplemental. People wonder what the size of the supplemental going back over your left shoulder to pay for things that were left unpaid for in the last session. People wonder, what is the size of the supplemental going to be? Right. Do you have a perspective on that? Do you have any sense of that as of right now? Right. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, sort of splitting the supplemental, you will, if you will, into that which is kind of a primary Harvey-related supplemental bill, things that we need, we know we need to do that directly related to Harvey, because largely we can pay for those with ESF funds uh, or rainy day funds. The other side of it is, you know, the holes left in the true budget that we have to finish off this biennium and stuff. Uh, in both cases, it's it's just south of a couple billion dollars. Uh, but a couple is in two, or two, a couple two, is in more than two billion dollars. So, so the supplemental could billion. conceivably be as much as four. It could, yeah, easily, and, yeah. and and it could be once we start hearing what other needs are out there, things that we haven't plugged into it so far. Uh, I, I would say I would anticipate the growth. Now, it's not going to come all out of uh, out of the funds uh, uh, in ESF. You know, remember we had a four billion dollar um, uh, revenue excess this time, if you want to call that. You know, um, beyond what we had budgeted, and so that's going to be a very very powerful part of being able to fill the holes that we created the last So the time. supplemental at whatever size it comes in is not going to cripple your ability to do what you need to do in this session. It will not. Will there be general agreement between the House and Senate on the need to take money out of the rainy day fund for the supplemental? In fact, I think the Senate has already called out that specific need, right? Correct. Using the supplemental for yes. and the Senate has been always less inclined to use the rainy day fund than the House has been, right? Correct. Or at least in yep. recent memory. Is the House there for on on the team as far as using the rainy day fund from what you know? Oh, I think so. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And and during and the, the speaker is on the team. Speaker's on that team. And during the whole conversation, as we were dealing with the Hurricane Harvey 
uh, recovery and the whole rebuild conversation, the governor and lieutenant governor have both been on record to say, you know, th- this is a lot of this is going to have to be managed with the rainy day funds. Right. You, yeah. you mentioned that there's a, a portion of the supplemental that's going to go to pay for things that were left unpaid in the last session. Often, the supplemental from the previous budget or the budget that's coming to an end this calendar year during a session it relates to Medicaid. So a, a, a component of that supplemental to go back over our shoulder will go to cover costs that were left unpaid Correct. on health care. Correct. Are you all doing enough on health care generally? <clears throat> I'm conscious that I'm talking not just to Chairman Zerwas, but to Dr. Zerwas. <laughs> You're not somebody who shows up at a conversation about health care without knowledge. You bring the receipts. Yeah. You're a subject matter expert. Well, I appreciate um, that. The governor did not mention healthcare in his state of the state. Now he mentioned mental health, which is healthcare of a sort, but Absolutely. it was more through the, the uh, through the school safety door. Right. Right. The amount of money that you all spend on healthcare every biennium is not equal to, but it's darn near close to what you spend on education. This session's agenda is roadblocked by public education. I get that. There is hardly a word about healthcare. And yet look at how much we spend. Those costs continue to go up. Correct. Do we have a problem here on that chairman? Uh, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a, a fairly complex thing. Again, you know, you, if you take mental health out of it, for which the state has had a very significant interest in, I think, ever since the 2013 session. Right. There has been increased amount of monies that have been spent in the area of mental health. Healthcare generally, uh, we, we look at, you know, the, the entitlement program, Medicaid and CHIP. And so, you know, we, we don't have a choice but to keep up with those programs. And so everything that we can do to try to hold down those costs on a, on, a, on a cost utilization basis. You know, we try to do that, not in terms of, you know, limiting access to care. Obviously, the Medicaid program is intended to, you know, benefit the, the indigent population that needs that for that purpose and stuff. Um, but are there areas that we need to seriously look at? I'll bring one up, maternal mortality. You know, are we doing enough in maternal mortality? Now, in this budget, we're, we're fully funding the recommendations that came out of the interim committee on maternal right. mortality. Right. Is that enough? I don't know. Here's one of the questions I have. Um, if, there's some, if to some extent maternal mortality is related to the fact that when women come off of their 60-day benefit when they deliver a baby, and they don't transition to the Texas, Texas Healthy Women's Program, we need to look at why that transition doesn't occur, okay? If there are people that, are, that we're losing as a consequence of the programs not working, uh, you know, in good harmony, then we, what, what would be the consequence of adding, you know, another 10 months to their program? In other words, a full year of Medicaid benefits uh, after they deliver the baby. And some, some states do that. Um, I think we ought to look at that, but we ought to look at not necessarily just what the cost would be, because there would be right. a cost associated with it. I, and again, I, I, don't, I haven't seen that number. Uh, but if it is, then um, let's have the conversation of what we need to do to be sure that at least to the extent from a policy point of view, we yep. can impact the maternal mortality rate by doing something in this area. So let's that's a, that specific, a specific call out of something that you would like to see done. Well, I think we ought, I think we ought to certainly have have that conversation. Uh, right. If if we find that women uh, women uh, health is deteriorating as a consequence of not having adequate uh, access to health care, whether it be through the Medicaid program then or we, through we need to Texas Healthy yeah. Women, yeah. let's let's figure that out and let's do it in the most cost effective right. way. What about the larger question, Chairman, of the fact that Texas continues to have so many people without access to insurance, mm-hmm. and that there continue to be so many 
counties in Texas with with not nearly enough doctors, according to the federal government. And then you, I guess, layer on top of that what we learned a couple of months ago, and that it is that after 10 years of decline, the uninsured children's rate in this country has now started to go back up, and Texas leads the way. We added more children to the uninsured roles in Texas than we added to the public education system in Texas last year. Right. So do we need to be going back to a time when we uh, uh, could conceivably look at expanding Medicaid or, or some sort of a solution? I mean, you know it's a, it's a continuing problem in the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. are, are you in a different place than you were once upon a time in terms of needing to have that conversation? Uh, I think we should always have that conversation uh, because that's not a statistic that we should be proud of. Uh, I think it's one that we should say, you know, look, uh, there is different segments of this population of uninsured. Uh, we can't just say it's a, it's 5 million people and we need to find a way to insure them. Well, a good number of those people are, are people that are here undocumented. They're not, they're not, you know, quote unquote, citizens of the country, citizens of the state. Okay. There probably is not a solution except for the free clinics that are out there for people. You're that not going to turn them care. away. You're not going to turn them away if they show up in your emergency rooms. Uh, and probably uh, they're going to find some access to care through a free clinic, uh, many of, right. of which are out there, you know. Uh, but there's, there's different segments. There are those that choose not to get health insurance, but otherwise would have the opportunity to get that. And, you know, you can't force those people, but, you know, there is that group that's out there. What I've always focused on is the ones for which there is not a solution out there. And that solution is this, this group of people that fall, you know, 133% uh, of the poverty, poverty level line, right, and below. Yeah, yeah, right. And, you know, we, we approached that in 2013, you know, with an idea that we could create some kind of a, a waiver type program for, for the Medicaid expansion. You know, we called it the Texas Solution. It basically established some guidelines for us to, you know, take advantage of that that very generous match from the federal government to provide a solution for this group of people right. and put some parameters in there that you might want to see. Now, uh, Indiana did this, you know, and Governor Pence at that time, uh, they, that's what they did. And right. it was a strong Republican. Uh, and, and you were an advocate there. for going to Washington and trying to cut out, cut a deal that would be, oh. that would be a, a Texas deal. That would exactly. be our terms, our flavor, our conservative approach to these things. Absolutely. And, and, and if you looked at what we proposed in that bill, and I think the number was 3791, it should be permanently in, yeah, in your in, brain, in my right, brain, yeah. but it's not. Uh, but if you look at that, it was really designed to be a bill that would, um, you know, guide us in terms of how you would handle a block grant of Medicaid if that was to be given to you. But, but my memory is that the politics of this hamstrung your ability to go. Oh, the politics totally destroyed it. Make that yeah, deal. Absolutely. So are the politics today any better here or there? Um, I think uh, at least from uh, people in my tribe, I'll call my in the Republicans, you know, I still think there's a lot of radioactivity around anything that right. might be viewed as an expansion of Medicaid. Uh, yeah, I think that's very, I think it, I think it would definitely be an uphill climb for What us. about the red states that over the last election cycle made the decision to allow voters to go up or down on that on the ballot? And in a couple of cases in red states, voters where the conservative elected officials were opposed to Medicaid expansion permitted their constituents to weigh in and their constituents ultimately said, yes, we ought to expand Medicaid. Why not allow the voters of Texas who we trust in all other ways to weigh in themselves? Well, you know, I, I've heard that to some extent as to whether that's a, a route that we would want to go. 
Um, I, again, again, that has to basically eventually come out of a decision of the legislature to do that and stuff. And I think the politics around it is, is so red hot still that right. I don't see it happening. Now, of course, couldn't one, couldn't one make the same argument about this that Chairman Betancourt is making about property taxes? Why are you so afraid of the voters? Yeah, well, I, I, I don't know that it's, it's um, being afraid of the voters as much as it is I don't think that, you know, a lot of our constituents view uh, that we represent them and the, and the Republicans are certainly the majority. I don't think they view this as something that, that they would want to do. You know, I don't, in other words, I don't think they'd want to see the bureaucracy and the mammoth right. nature of the entitlement program so you grow think, even larger. So you think that voters would actually come in behind elected officials and say, yeah, we don't want to do this? Uh, I think if I base that on on my Your voters and so forth, yeah, yeah they they would come. Well, there's in and a say, way to test the proposition. There there could be a way to test the proposition. Put it to the voters. Uh, but I think yeah. that uh, that's what they elect me to come up here and do, right. and they hold me accountable for that when I come home. Got, and I can it. assure you, when I came home last time in 2013, I heard loud and clear from from voters to say, you know, well, we appreciate what you're trying to do, but don't, but but, but don't do we it. we don't right. think that's a good idea to grow the entitlement program like that. A couple more things, Chairman, uh, before we wrap up. You know that the population of Texas is projected by the demographers to double, almost double, between now and 2050. We're becoming yeah. a much more urban state, as I said earlier, and we're, of course, becoming a much more diverse state before our eyes. As you think about that existential question I began with, do we have enough money? Do you think we're doing an adequate job in general of investing in the future of Texas? Or are we going to regret 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now that when we had the money, when the economy was humming along better than almost anybody else's, we did not undergird that foundation? Mm -hmm. So that when the day came that we were 54 million people, rather than collapsing under our own weight... We actually were able to hold up all these people who came to Texas for those reasons that you said. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you worry that we're not doing enough? Well, I, I tell you where, where I, I worry, and, and, and again, it comes down to what, what is going to make the state great. You know, uh, I think what's going to make this great, the, the state great ultimately is going to be our investment in, in, in the educational programs uh, from, from foundation education all it's, the way through it's higher It's there ed. that you it, think that's what I, we I have th to I think that's the, the area. Now, we're going to have to keep up with infrastructure. We're going to have to make sure that we – continue to attract business here and so forth. But if you, if you take the premise that maybe one day oil and gas is not going to always be out there for us, um, you know, what's going to keep the state moving forward? It's going to be, I think, you know, the ability to, to create workforce that attracts businesses to come here right. that is more diverse. And so uh, I think that's the thing that we, we need to be cognizant of. I think that's very much, it's very timely with what we're talking about in, in the legislature right now along the areas of school finance and so forth. Um, I think that uh, there, there'll be lots of other things, you know, but singularly, I think that will be the thing that we do. We, right. and, and then there's a whole bunch of other things I think that will continue to allow the state to continue yeah. to uh, grow and prosper. You like being appropriations chair. Well, I, you know, I tell you, I do, uh, Evan. And the, the reason is, is, is because everything the state does has a price tag on it. So you get to see everything that oh, yeah. the state is doing. And you get to get you get into it, and not extraordinarily deep necessarily, but you get into it at a point that you can say, "Yeah, I know the state is doing that, and I know the state could do more, perhaps right. in this particular." Well, you area. materially affect the decisions made by the rest of the body, and on behalf of all twenty-eight point three million of us, arguably, it's a more powerful job than speaker. Well, it's a, it's a more focused job than speaker for right. sure. It's also <laughs> a more it's, th it's also a thankless job. 
Maybe it's no accident that in the modern history of Texas, no appropriations chair has ever gone to be speaker. Right, you know, I remember right? you asked me that when I right? first announced for speaker. Because you know, because and I said that was time to change. Well, <laughs> and, uh, didn't, didn't it didn't change this it time. This right? time yeah. But I'm very pleased with how things came out. But, yeah. uh, trust me. So, uh, But you know, I, it, I, I would say you make uh, more friends than you don't in the appropriations process. Uh, and certainly at a time when you're, you've got a pretty robust economy, you make a lot of friends. Uh, but I think that it, it's one that still, I mean, uh, prepares you well if you wanted to serve as speaker because of that very broad understanding of, of what the state does. Right. Well, let's get you through this first session thank, uh, 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 under, under the new speaker and see what happens. Mr. Chairman, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate okay. it. Thank you, Evan. You've been listening to Point of Order proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guest, State Representative John Zerwas, and thanks to the sponsors of this episode, Deloitte, Centerpoint Energy, and the Texas Hospital Association. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 86th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, tell your friends about us. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith. <laughs>